Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Need gift ideas for your foodie friends? Coming up this hour, gadgets, essential tools, and stocking stuffers for all the food lovers on your list. We talk with a writer from The Strategist about their annual list of the best gifts for home cooks. And later in the show, we talk to local makers of gift-worthy cutting boards, baked goods, and a most impressive hair branding. Mm. But first, what are people buying right now for the cooks and foodies in their lives? Our first guest is James Hines. He's the co-owner and manager of Cookshop Plus, a family-owned independent gourmet kitchen store in West Hartford. We started off by asking James what his go-to kitchen gadgets are. You know what? My absolute go-to is a good pair of tongs. I couldn't agree more. Because there's nothing else you can use. If you need a pair of tongs, you need a pair of tongs. And if they don't work or they keep snapping open, it's infuriating. So when people ask me that in the store, they go, oh, yeah, I guess. I thought you were going to say something more exciting, but <laughs> it's fun- it's function. It's the unsung hero of the of the kitchen. Yeah, definitely. And let me give you the chef pro tip here. There you go. When you find a good pair of tongs, buy two of them. <laughs> Trust me. Yes. Put one where it's easy to get and one in a drawer somewhere. Always, because yep. someone always steals your damn tongs. That's <laughs> true. So, James, you are no stranger to items, gadgets, gizmos aplenty uh, that foodies, cooks all use. What are you finding that folks are coming in looking for this holiday season? This holiday season has been a real throwback to core items. We've gone through years where you know, non-stick skillets were a big thing. Then it was Instapots, air fryers, you know, those kind of gadgets and tools that are larger, but you kind of go, oh, wow, I wonder what that does. This year really is off the back of all this kind of COVID, people being at home more. It's a resurgence in core things. People who cook already now all of a sudden cooking more and want better versions of what they have, whether it be gadgets, tools, bakeware, cookware, whatever it is, knives particularly. But uh, people who haven't cooked, it's stocking up the kitchen on stuff that they never knew they needed, (laughs) which is quite a lot. To me, this Christmas is or this holiday season so far has really been what I consider to be stocking stuffers. You know, really four or five, six, seven, eight items of of stuff people are going to really use rather than one large item that looks good when you unwrap it. What are some of those things? Like I said, tongs are a huge one at the moment. Metal turners, good spatulas, particularly around the baking area, good springform pans, different sizes in the in the baking pans. A lot of people are making cakes. A lot of people are making bread. It doesn't have to be specialized baking. I think off the back of um, TV shows as well, people are really baking basics, you know, a good cake, a good chocolate cake. There's nothing better. They're not trying to kind of reinvent the wheel or be a, a be a Heston in the kitchen. They just want to know the basics. And that's what kind of the trend of the year is. And we get asked a lot. We get people coming and saying, I need to buy a gift for a foodie friend of mine. What's, what's the go-to gadget? And I say, well, let me show you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole aisle full of it. And once they start down that process, then they really identify it's one of those get one for the person and then get one for me. <laughs> so they're buying two of everything. You know, good sheet pans, a great yeah. stainless steel metal bowl set. Like these things are always a winner with a cook for sure. Kitchen towels, oven gloves, that kind of stuff. Yeah, those things are all great. A knife, a great knife. Doesn't yep. have to be crazy expensive as long as you take care of it. 
you can also get some great Connecticut made products and you guys carry a few of those, don't you? We do. We try and carry as many as we possibly can. You know, as a small local business for us, it's a no brainer to try and support other small local businesses. Um, and Connecticut has some fantastic, especially around the food, a couple of the big ones that we we have really good success throughout the year with, but also particularly now because it's a really good go-to gift for the foodie in your in your life. The biggest one I probably is Podunk Popcorn. So it's a young guy called Dan. They're out of South Windsor. So his family was farming almost 10 years ago. He decided that he wanted to kind of plow a field and do something a bit different. Okay. Unbelievable success. Comes in a nice mason jar. It just tastes delicious. You know, it's, a lot of people want to add stuff to their popcorn, but just popping a good plain popcorn is really, really delicious. And he does a great job. Um, so yeah, Podunk Popcorn out of South Windsor. Um, and another one of my really big favorites is Ariston Oils. They're out of Bloomfield, Connecticut. They carry a great selection of olive oils and balsamic vinegars. Their olive oils come out of Greece. They own farms and have relationships with people in Greece. They're actually Greek themselves. And their balsamic vinegars come out of uh, Modena in Italy. Oh, cool. Um, so they do straight balsamic, straight olive oils, but then they do the cool little flavors. Like they do a chili oil. They do a, um, the one that I really like is that they're doing a fig balsamic at the moment, which is really, really good. And anyone who's trying to try olive oils and vinegars in the past, you can get good and you can get great. These are great at a great price point. And they're local, but they just are really, really good gifts. Um, and so that's particularly something you buy one for me and one for the gift. Yeah. <laughs> so you can enjoy them yourself. And what about the Spice Mill? Spice Mill, yeah. So they're out of Manchester, Connecticut. They do hundreds and hundreds of spices and blends. Uh, we stock a really good selection of the ones that are a bit harder to get. The Raza Halut, tomato powder, for the crazies, the uh, the ghost, ground ghost pepper chilies, which we sell a lot of. And I don't know who's eating it, but it, I've tried it. And one little taste, I was very, I was very red. Spicy is hot right now. <laughs> Spice is really hot. They source from all over the world. Um, and then they process here in Connecticut. Um, if you've been to eat out in West Hartford ever, um, they pretty much supply spices and herbs and everything to majority of the restaurants. Yeah. They just have a great selection. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds, but yeah, they're, they're out of Manchester. They have a little storefront so you can go and visit. If they don't have it, you don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So aside from like beautiful table linens and pottery and baking, it, all the all the things that we all definitely want to have in our kitchen, you carry a lot of fun kitchen gadgets as well. What are some of your favorite kind of uh, obscure gadgets that are like, oh, I didn't even know I needed this? We've, uh, we have a bit of a thing amongst our staff. We always try and gauge, you know, a top four, top five items for the, for the year. And this year, there's three that come straight to mind. So the first one, which you, most people are going to be familiar with but don't own, they're called toast tongs. So it's a bamboo mini toast. They have a magnet stuck to it. So if you've ever reached into the toaster to try and get that stuck bit of toast out and you burn your fingers, that's what they're there for. It is one of those gadgets where you don't know you need it until, until you need it. it. Toast tongs? Yes. The second is what we call thumb scrapers. What? Now, they are one of the most useful things in the kitchen. They're about two inches long, two and a half inches long. They fit between your uh, forefinger and thumb. It's uh, a very comfortable handle between there. And then a little bit of black plastic, which essentially comes to a taper. But you can get labels off. You can get sticky stuff off. You can get wax. But they're particularly good if you've got glass cooktops, which, you know, a lot of people do when it's really difficult to get stuff off without, you know, damaging the top. You run that across, but yeah, we, we say to people, if you anything you use your thumbnail for to try and scrape off, these are perfect. If I could tell you how many times a day I hear somebody tell me about a product or, a, or something in the kitchen, and I'm like, God, I'm dumb. I didn't think of that, and they're making millions of dollars <laughs> off of it. Tell me about it. 
<laughs> yeah, you probably see it all the time. All right, sorry. So that's that's our number two. Yep. And now what's number three? Number three is they're called Euro Scrubbies. They're, they're a really functional item. They're, they're a plastic material. They're not too harsh, but instead of using Brillo pads or steel wool, when you want to clean cookware, um, cast iron, things like that, where you don't want to damage the surface of what you're cleaning, but you want to try and get it off. They're brilliant. It's a product out of Canada, $299, $399. You just you keep using them, put them in the top rack of the dishwasher to clean. They come in funky colors so you can't lose them. They're very, very popular because it's hard to get stuff that actually cleans and gets really stuck on things off without damaging. So they're particularly good with cast iron or nonstick skillets. And it works. It works really well. People use them for... You know, in the in the shower to clean grout. You know, in the kitchen to clean bench tops and um, stainless steel sinks. It's okay. just it's a really multifunctional piece of cleaning equipment. But again, it's something that a lot of people will kind of miss and look over. But once you've got it, you know, people come back and they go, "I bought this, and now I'm buying ten more for other people because it really works." So yeah, they, they they definitely make up the top three purchased and given as gifts. I was looking at your Instagram page and I saw a gadget that I have been flirting with for years. The potato ricer. Do I really need this thing? Because that doohickey Ooh. looks like it would save me time. Well, my question to you, and I think Chef will be able to back me up on this one, is if you like smooth mashed potato, yes, you do. Yeah. Can I throw out my potato masher? Yes, but you know, it depends on the crowd. Like my, my wife really likes it quite kind of chunky, like rustic style. But if I brought that to a friend's house, no one would eat it. So to me, the more you mash it, the more you're building up that kind of starch and it can get a bit gluey. Mm -hmm. The potato ricer basically takes care of it. You're putting in, you're minimally processing it. And yeah, it, I mean, you get some really smooth mashed potato without building up that, that starch. You can throw your butter and your cream, whip it right up, and it's beautiful, fluffy, delicious. Might as well, if you don't have a ricer, you need to go do that right now. I think so. And I also like that this one, I don't have to peel my potatoes. Yes. Not having to peel the potatoes especially around the holidays. Every minute counts when you're prepping, when you've got 20 people coming over <laughs> and no one's got time to peel potatoes in, in, in those situations. <laughs> right. Do any of your customers say, I need this and you were just completely confounded? <laughs> the biggest struggle I think and what makes us laugh is when people come in and they have a name for something that's theirs. <laughs> they come in and ask for a certain cake pan that their mother used to cook a certain cake in and that's what they call it. And we're legs scratching our heads going, we have no idea what this person's asking us for. And then we take them up and we have a look and we, we dig down, we ask a few questions, then we go, oh, yes, a bun pan. That's what, that's what you mean. Pan. You need a teaspoon. Right. <laughs> Food is, um, it's personal. And that leads to some initial frustration, then, then a lot of laughter because by the time the person realized they've been calling it this name and had no idea that it actually had a real name, is uh, it happens quite a lot. So, James, I have three daughters. I have twins that are 14, and my youngest is 11, and they all spend time in the kitchen. One of my twins is actually in a culinary class in high school right now. So for kids getting into food, what about some great gifts for that? And that's a category we're seeing a lot of. I mean, I know me growing up, the idea of kids in the kitchen was, you know, licking the spoon at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the, uh, the cake mixture. The, being... the beaters, yeah. Yeah, the beaters, yeah. But now we, I mean, we do cooking classes, and the level of skill kids these days ranging from you know toddlers up until teenagers is is quite impressive i mean off the back of food network tv shows you know right the skill set of kids is, is amazing so we try and cater for the very entry level and all the way up but think just basics like you know you're not going to give them a, a full chef's knife but we have kids knives that are specifically designed to get them holding the knife in the right way they're not too sharp but they're sharp enough that when they transition to a, a normal knife it's not going to be a huge shock 
Uh, we have little baking sets that are specifically designed for kid-sized stuff. And it's good. It's getting kids in the kitchen and actually getting them to cook rather than just to look. That's right. That's right. James, we appreciate you, man. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Have a great holiday. Come in for the potato ricer. <laughs> that was James Hines of Cook Shop Plus in West Hartford. James mentioned cooking classes offered at the shop. Those make a great gift, too. Just saying. Their website is cookshopplus.com. Now, at The Strategist, that's the online shopping guide curated by the editors of New York Magazine, they are constantly adding to their roundups of best gifts. Our next guest is Emma Wurtzman. She's the kitchen and dining writer for The Strategist. She co-wrote the article, 35 Best Gifts for Every Type of Home Cook. I talked to Emma about her favorite items on the list, starting with an essential kitchen tool. The Ben Reiner mandolin is fantastic. It's the best mandolin, which I say because I both have it and it was the one that everybody told me to get before I bought it. I want everybody to know. I want everybody to know what a mandolin is. Because we say these things and you're thinking, wait, she's a kitchen gadget. The people, they play in like a little tiny guitar. No, <laughs> it does no, no. sound like that. <laughs> so a mandolin is like a, it's a small flat piece of equipment with a very with a blade on it that has adjustable levels. And you can take like a potato and you have a guard. You put the potato in the guard. Or if you're a chef like me, you throw the guard in the, tr- in the trash. And you slide the potato or vegetable. You slide it down this flat piece across a, a blade that has adjustable sizes. You can get beautifully thin like potato chips out of it or really thin pieces of carrot. Uh, So what makes this one so different and why do you love it so much? I love this one because it isn't as bulky as some of the other ones I've seen are. The blade is super, super sharp, which I feel like is sort of the key factor. I've had mine seven years now, six years now, something like that. And I've never had to replace the blade, but you can replace the blade if you want to, which a lot of versions don't allow you to do. So you sort of just unscrew the sides and they'll send you replacement blades and you can put a new super sharp one right in. Cool. And the adjustments are easy for different thicknesses. It's just sort of the perfect version of what it is. Is the blade on that, is it ceramic or is it steel? It's steel. Nice, nice. The one in my knife bag is ceramic, so that's why I'm asking. Let's talk about some baker stuff, because, listen, I'm not a great baker, but I am a good baker, and silicone spatulas are definitely one of the most important things to have when you're a baker, and uh, G-I-R, GIR, yeah, GIR. makes a spatula set that's on the list, and it's recommended by Aaron Jean McDowell, a.k.a. The Fearless Baker. Can you talk about this a little bit? I love these spatulas. I just bought them recently, actually, to replace sort of my old Bed Bath & Beyond ones that I got way back in the day. And it has been a super game changer for me. They are incredibly sturdy. They're easy to clean. And then to me, the most important thing is that the various shapes and sizes that they have are so great for doing different things. So whether you want a bigger one for like scraping out cake batter or a mini one, which I use for scrambling eggs, which is fantastic. They come in so many different sizes. They have one with a super long handle, which can be great for kind of like getting into things. It's a little bit skinnier. Anyway, many different options. Really, really love them. And, you know, I think too, like a spatula may seem like a funny gift on its head, but anyone who loves to cook will be happy with these. And they have so many colors available. So I always think you could do like a fun mix and match set to make it more impressive. So uh, our friend Valerie Lomas has something on this list, which I'm a big fan of, the Bunt Cake Pan. And this particular pan is a favorite of Valerie, and it's on the list, right? Yes, it is a Nordic Ware decorative bunt pan. I have to say this is actually one of my sort of favorite ideas for gifting this year. I just think it's like for somebody who loves to bake, I think it's a perfect gift. It comes in a million different 
designs, I guess. So there's like braided ones and sort of geometric looking ones, and they're all beautiful. Nordic wear is sort of the best of the best in terms of quality, in terms of like evenness of baking cakes, um, just making sure it's like perfectly cooked all the way through in terms of nonstick. This is something that Valerie talked to me a lot about, but it's just sort of unparalleled in terms of quality. And then, you know, I think the nice thing about it too, is that even if somebody loves to bake and they have sort of a standard cake pan, while this is $45 and might feel like kind of a splurge for a pretty basic piece of kitchen equipment, it's so special. And it's like the kind of thing, at least myself that I like maybe wouldn't buy for myself would be like so excited to get. Yeah. And especially like a centerpiece type situation you're making you know you want to impress your guests come on that's what we got to do totally okay so we've got some gadgets we've got some tools let's talk about some things people can eat now any great chef will tell you salt is an important part of the meal home cooks now know that as well some great flaky malden sea salt is a way to go always for a great finishing salt and guess what Amazon has a whole bucket of it you can buy right now, right? <laughs> it is so big. Yes, they do. It's awesome. It's gigantic. I have one that I actually just finished and I swear I got this finished. thing, I, but I got it like two years ago. Like it lasted me so long and I am a heavy <laughs> salt user. It's wild. So anybody who cooks on the regular, give them a giant bucket of Malden. Nobody would be disappointed to get this. And I don't think it's that crazy expensive either anymore. Is I feel like it used to be way more expensive than it is now. Yeah, it looks like it's 25 bucks, That's which is nothing. super not bad. Think of all the salt. I always like the idea of like companion gifts. Yeah. Because it's such a big bucket of Malden, you're probably not going to like leave it on your counter, but you could give somebody the big bucket of Malden and then maybe like a little tiny bowl as like a salt cellar and they can keep refilling the bowl, which is what I do when I bring it from my dining table to my kitchen, depending on whether I'm cooking or eating and thought that might be cute. I'd love to get that gift. That's a cool gift to have, you know? Here's the thing. The problem is, is that I have white countertops in my kitchen and my wife won't let me keep anything on the countertops. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's all clear. So, but I might get away with a little small dish of uh, Malden salt, but I definitely couldn't leave the bucket up there. But the chef me wants to leave the bucket there and be like, look at my salt. This is what I have in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Worthman, thank you for going through the list with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Emma Wurtzman is the kitchen dining writer for New York Magazine's The Strategist. She's also the co-author of the article, 35 Best Gifts for Every Type of Home Cook, which you can find on newyorkmag.com slash strategist. We're sharing gift ideas for cooks and foodies on the nice list. Later in the hour, have you seen those bottles of brandies with a whole pear inside? They really make gorgeous gifts. We talk to the local distiller who produces them. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, local makers. We talked to a woodworker who was making stunning cutting boards and bakers who use one of my favorite things, beer, in their craft beer-infused treats. First, our process started with getting flights of beer or ciders when we were going to the breweries just so we can get the taste of it. Research, I get it. Yeah, it's all business research. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. This week, we're sharing holiday gift ideas for cooks and foodies. And next, we want to introduce you to some of the local artisans who make beautiful and really delicious things we think you'd be proud to give or completely happy to just receive. Steve Yop is the owner of Timbercraft Designs. 
Steve is a woodworker who makes beautiful cutting boards and wooden spoons out of his garage workshop in Bristol, Connecticut. Steve, welcome to Seasoned. Hey, thank you for having me. I'll tell you, man, we saw your cutting boards online and we knew immediately we had to talk with you for our show about gifts for food lovers. Thank you very much. They're, they're a labor of love, that's for sure. What's your inspiration for making these boards? I was also a chef at one point in my life. I left that industry when I had my daughter. Basically, now at this point, cutting boards come from things around me. If I see a certain pattern in a tile floor or something like that, I try to emulate that as a pattern in a cutting board or you know, different grain textures and things like that. I just try to mimic that as much as possible as well as shapes. Can you talk about just what it goes into making one of those like patterned cutting boards? I don't know if everyone knows what goes into making that happen. Yeah, most people think it stains and dyes and they don't realize that you can't use a stain on something you're going to cut on. So especially like the chaotic pattern ones, the ones that are really crazy, you have to glue that up and cut it and re-glue it sometimes up to six times. You mentioned being a chef. As your years of being a chef in the restaurant, has it affected how you make cutting boards? Uh, it affects the size I make them. Personally, I like a larger cutting board because, you know, you want to cut something, you want to slide it off to the side, yeah. you want to keep moving. You don't want to stop and have to empty your board every time because you got a little dinky one. What about a connection between the two, between working with food and working with wood? It's ever present. I mean, it's nature. That's where everything comes from. The tree comes. I try to buy most of my stuff locally from people who mill the wood here in Connecticut, as well as food, same thing, you know, it, it should all be local and sustainable. Now, listeners can see your work at timbercraftdesignct.com, but I'm trying to, I want to do our best to try to describe your aesthetic. I mean, you use wood, like we said, from native trees like maple and cherry and walnut, ash, and the boards are never just straight up like plain like pieces of wood to cut on. They always have some sort of artistry going on with that, right? Yeah, I like to to find, like I said, some sort of pattern from something that inspires me. You know, it, it depends on the grain of the wood that determines a lot of things. If you find some really crazy wavy grain, you might incorporate that in a board that's got a curve or something like that. A lot of the boards I've made now are end grain cutting boards, which are flipped up on their side. It's actually better for your knife. Mm -hmm. That allows you, like I said, to to cut and re-glue it and to come up with these really crazy patterns of things that you're cutting at an angle and you get little slivers of different colors here and there. It just creates a totally different aesthetic. Did anybody teach you this or did you just figure it out on your own or how did, how did we get? Oh, YouTube, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's all you need now. So two of the cutting boards I think that really stood out to us were boards that you call the Cherry Chaos and Maple Chaos. Yep. I mean, if it's chaos, it's controlled chaos because the boards are absolutely stunning. Do people tell you that they actually don't even want to cut on them? They just want to hang them up as art or put them up in the kitchen, display pieces? That's got to happen. I hear it constantly. The thing I tell everybody is that every board that I make is reversible. I don't put rubber feet on my cutting board. I don't put a juice groove on my cutting board. You can use one side to cut. And if you want to present on the other side and have it as a showpiece or put it on a stand, just don't cut on the other side. Yeah. I used to always tell people as a chef, one of my greatest, most favorite tools aside from my knife in the kitchen was a really good wooden spoon, but so simple and can be, you know, almost like a sentimental piece to a lot of cooks like myself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people use their moms or grandmother's wooden spoons over generations. What inspired you to start making spoons and were they more or less challenging than making a cutting board? It's a different situation because a cutting board, you're using a lot of power tools. It's quicker. A spoon for me, you know, you look at things on Instagram and YouTube and you look at these people using these crazy grained woods with figures and swirls and things like that. Yeah. 
and you just stare at it with like admiration because they're gorgeous. I wanted to try to do it. So I took a class. That's how I learned how to do my first one. And then I kind of riffed on that design and made a pattern of my own. But a spoon, it's literally just me sitting at a bench with a carving gouge and either a draw knife or a spoke shave. So there's no power tools involved. You're carving it out by hand. Like you feel every stroke. It's just a totally different, more relaxing experience. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Hey, so as part of this episode, we've been talking about a lot of kitchen gadgets that we think are essential. And we know a great cutting board is obviously essential, but do you have a kitchen tool that you use as a home chef now that you think should get a shout out or something that's your, your favorite? I'm pretty simple. I mean, I like a good, good all clad pan, a good knife. I use global knives and I use my cutting boards. <laughs> I don't have any crazy things. I don't have an air fryer or anything like that. <laughs> you know, I just do it the way I was taught to do it. I believe it. I believe you. Steve, thanks so much for sharing your work with us. You probably won't believe it'll leave your garage until 2022 now, but hey, that's okay, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. Happy holidays, my friend. Thanks for including me. You guys as well. We know many of you leave cookies out for Santa, but this year, you may want to offer something a tad bit more interesting. Our next guests are Stefania Halverson and Jessica Owen. They're the co-owners of The Drunk Alpaca, a mobile bake shop. These bakers infuse some of their best-selling baked goods and snacks with cider and craft beer from breweries around the state. You guys are hitting all the strings to my heart right here. Beer, baked (laughs) goods, count me in, that's for sure. Stefania, which one of you had the great idea to collaborate with local brewers on baked goods and snacks? Um, I don't think necessarily one of us can take credit for that, but um, we did start off as a traditional bakery with just one Guinness brownie, and it was pretty successful. So we decided to start supporting local and reach out to local breweries and see if they would let us use their beer. And everybody seemed to be on board, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So is there a certain beer that works better with baked goods and specific baked goods or ingredients that we use for baking? The stouts do really well with chocolate. So that's what we use that for the brownies, IPAs and pale ales do really well in the blondies and the texture of the brownie actually comes from the amount of carbonation in the beer. So if one is a little bit more carbonated, it's going to be a fluffier, cakier brownie or blondie. If it's a little bit more heavier, uh, less bubbly, then it's going to be like a fudgier and richer brownie. So not only are we getting the flavors from the beer, we're also getting the different textures and the different types of brownies and blondies. So Jessica, when you use something like a like a Guinness, then like that's more of a dense kind of brownie then, right? Because there's not like a lot of carbonation in, in a Guinness. Right. People think it's going to be super carbonated, but once you drink a Guinness, you learn real quick that it's very smooth. It's not harsh on your palate to drink. So, and yes, it also gives you a smoother, fudgier brownie as opposed to an airier, cakier style. How do you get the flavor right? Because I don't know that there are many bakers who infuse their goods with alcohol. I mean, I'll throw a brandy in a flan every once and again, but that's like, you know. You're making flans on a regular basis now? I need need a flan. I actually try never to make them. (laughs) My family likes them. I despise it, but you know, got to make the family happy. It was a lot of trial and error, fine-tuning different combinations. Like if we were doing any add-ins to our brownies, like a caramel add-in or Oreo add-in, M&M add-in, whatever, you just kind of learn along with trial and error It definitely involved a lot of taste testing in terms of the beer first. And over the years, we've just learned which ones work better 
not just flavor wise, but sort of chemistry wise to fine tune what we're trying to hit in terms of the texture and the flavor. So you use cider, beer and whiskey to glaze pretzels, potato chips, nuts. Alcohol can be a little bit challenging sometimes, but to you guys, alcohol seems to be, you know, like a little toy. (laughs) When you use something like a cider or a beer or whiskey, how do you choose which to make a glaze out of and to to fit with each individual thing you make? You know, straight from the beginning, once you've had a beer or a cider, whether or not you come across a floral tone, a floral note, or a a more nutty, earthy note to it. So you kind of choose based on that. So if we're doing something in terms of just a straight nut, sometimes the nuttier, like more earth tone works, especially in the winter. Um, But if you're going for something lighter, brighter in the summer, same thing, you would go maybe with the cider because you're getting more of a fruity or a floral note to it. We'll do rosemary chips with cider sometimes. And the brighter floral note just balances really good with the rosemary. So that sometimes will be how we choose what to use for what we're making as well. Can you just give us a little idea of the process of that, Stefania? I'm just curious, like, are you reducing it down? Are you getting a powder? Like how, just the process that, you know, you don't have to give away all your secrets, you know, I'm not trying to trade <laughs> away here, but I'm just curious how you do that. Do you make a, do you make a simple syrup out of a, like a reduced Guinness? Like, how do we do that? First, our process started with um, getting flights of beer or ciders when we were going to the breweries, just so we can get the taste of it. So that was a fun process when we first started uh, the adventure. Research. I get it. Yeah. It's uh it's all business research. And um, then we uh, started doing glazes and caramels. So we do a glaze with the beer. So it's a beer reduction, say for the chips, we do a beer reduction with uh, butter and local honey. Uh, for the pretzels, it's the same process. Instead of honey, we use sugar. We make our beer caramel for our nuts is just a the beer with the sugar caramel. So it's a dairy-free caramel. So we do offer vegan options or dairy-free options. Interesting. When we're baking it into like the browners or bonders, like I said, it's just the beer as is. So that you can get the carbonation, the different textures baked into it. Yeah, and then same for the pies. We do a, a reduction is baked into the pies itself. This is probably a very busy season for you. Yes, absolutely. The um, the holidays between Thanksgiving and Christmas get very busy for us. For Thanksgiving pies, we baked over 400 pies, just the two of us ourselves, in two days. Now until Christmas, we're doing a lot of gift baskets, a lot of snacks for stocking stuffers, just that final push for you know Christmas before everybody goes on their New Year's resolution diets. Well, you went to pies. That's exactly where I was going to go next here. Tell us about some of them. What kind of pies are you making Are we getting beer and cider and whiskey in those as well? Yeah, absolutely. We do a range of different flavors because not everybody is a alcohol, beer, hard cider fan. But um, so we do some traditional ones like our apple cinnamon crumb, but we like to do different flavors. So we're not just doing a plain blueberry pie. So we're doing a blueberry lemon pie, cherry almond pie. And then for our uh, the drunk part lovers, we do a hard cider mixed berry, a peach bourbon with local bourbon chocolate whiskey pecan with local whiskey. And then we also into our um, pumpkin pie for the Thanksgiving season, we did a pumpkin beer reduction into the pumpkin pie. Sounds delicious. And by the way, if you like all those things, don't make you a bad person. We're <laughs> throwing it out there. We love them all. <laughs> and we also do some fun other pies like our cookie pies, which have been pretty popular this season, which is um, like a cookies and cream, which has crushed Oreos or peanut butter cup, which has Reese's peanut butter cups baked into it. And then a Toll House cookie pie that has a, it's a chocolate chip cookie pie with walnuts. 
Is there any bourbon in any of those? No, those are traditionally ah. baked, but they're super Keep delicious. It moving. <laughs> Keep it moving. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can find the drunk alpaca goodies at breweries, brew fests, craft fairs, farm stands, pop-ups all throughout the state. Search The Drunk Alpaca on Facebook to see listings of where they'll be and when they'll be there. Or visit their website, thedrunkalpaca.com, square.site, for info on how to order their beer-infused treats. Thanks, girls. Thank you. Thank you so much. Get some sleep on December 26th. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That was Stefania Halverson and Jessica Owen, the bakers behind The Drunk Alpaca. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. In just a few minutes, you're going to hear my conversation with the local distiller behind one of the most unique bottles of brandy you can buy. It's not an easy process. <laughs> I guess not. You, you won't see any factory distillers putting out beer in the bottle. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Seasoned, I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're sharing gift ideas for the cooks and foodies on your list. Next up, a delicious collaboration between local farmers and an Ashford distiller. If you've seen those bottles of brandy with the whole Bartlett pear inside and wondered, how'd they do that? Well, you're about to find out. Louis Chady and his wife Margaret established Westford Hill Distillers in 1998. They became famous for their fruit brandies. They've added organic vodka, gin, rum, and whiskey their offerings. But it's their pear brandy we think makes a really unique gift for the spirit lover on your list. And it's definitely a conversation piece. I talked with Lewis about the distillery and that gorgeous heart-shaped bottle with a pear inside. Yeah, we were um, one of the first distilleries, craft distilleries in the U.S. when we started. And we were very intrigued by these eau de vies, which are a European style of brandy distilled from fruits, and thought that the uh, In the Northeast here, we produce a number of those fruits, and um, we could really give another voice to the category, if you will. We've been working with growers for over 20 years within the state uh, who produce just wonderful fruits for us that we bring in for distillation and ultimately these brandies. I know you said it there, but I just want to make sure everyone understands what eau de vie is. Can you explain that to everyone just so they understand that? Eau de vie translates to water of life. That's what the French call it. The Germans call it schnapps. Eastern European, they call it plinka. So everyone has sort of their own name for it. So by definition, it's a brandy that's been distilled from fruit, but has not seen any oak aging. So it's perfectly clear. The wine drinker in me is coming out. Like there's no woodness <laughs> whatsoever. There's no like wood staves put in for extra flavor. Or... That's correct. Okay, that's cool. correct. It's just the fruit singing on its own. And the fruits we like to use, obviously, you can do apple, you can do pear, pretty mm-hmm. much any fruit. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, the Germans have been distilling Montmorency cherries for the Kirschwasser, pear William, which is the Bartlett pear, fraise framboise from raspberries, strawberries, uh, the little Mirabelle plums for Schliebewitz. Uh, so a wide variety of fruits are being distilled. So for that brandy lover on your list, Lewis, can you describe to us this gorgeous bottle? Because this is what really, really struck us right here was this bottle that has this pear inside of it Mm -hmm. with the brandy. And I read on the website how it's done, but 
I want to hear from the master's mouth here. Well, it's one of the wonders of palmology to get that pear to grow in the bottle. And the French have been doing it for about 400 years. Amazing. It's very difficult to do. When we first started doing this, we had about a 15% success rate from what we hung to what we harvested. Fortunately, we have an association with our local university, UConn, who sends a number of uh, fruit science, ag engineering, organic chemistry classes through on field trips. There was a young man named Russell Holmberg in one of these tours from Holmberg Orchards in uh, Gales Ferry, Connecticut. He was a senior at the time. When he graduated, he came back to us and asked if he could take the project on for us. And we were very happy to give it to him. In essence, what you're doing is you're taking your bottles out into the orchard in the early spring and finding a little pear about the size of a marble that you can snake up into the bottle. And then it's got to stay attached. So you're tying it off to the tree, both top and bottom. And that pear is going to mature in there over the growing season. And with any luck, at the end of the growing season, you have a nice mature pear there. It's string and tape, and that's how we get that to stay in that bottle, right? Oh, and much more. If it's too much sun, you have to whitewash the outside so it doesn't cook. Uh, But most importantly, you have to know which pear to put in the bottle. So pears set in clusters of five. One of those pears is referred to as the bull pear. That's the pear that's apt to mature. The other four may drop during the growing season. So to identify the bull pear at petal fall, which they're all the same size at petal fall, you have to know by the proximity in the cluster where that bull pear should be. That's the one you insert. And that's what Mr. Fruit Science, Russell Holmberg, knew that we didn't. And he has an 85% success rate. (laughs) And I have to say, he's taken it much, much further than that. So he's no longer climbing trees and hanging bottles, but he's dedicated a block of his orchard to it where he's espaliered dwarf Bartlett's onto uh, trellises so he can work head and chest tight and then uh, grafted all his dwarf Bartlett's onto Quince rootstock because he feels Quince give him a better fruit set in larger pairs for the project. So so on a trellis, that means they kind of hang. You can kind of control their height, so it's, it's easier to get to. Correct. Think grape trellis. That's what I picture in my head. With all the wires. Right. But you said espalier. What does that one mean? Espalier. It's, it's, it's a matter of training the branches to follow the wires. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are pears the only fruit that you can successfully do this with? Or can you do it with apples? Can you do it with... Long term. Uh, In uh, Normandy, they do it with apples. Apples last about a year in in the brandy. And then the skin starts to blister. Uh, Some people will put fresh cherries into the bottom of kirsch. They're fine again for about a year. And then they start to decompose. There's something about the makeup of the pear skin that makes it impervious to the alcohol. And consequently, most people think, boy, I'd love to eat that nice pear after it's soaked for a year in that alcohol. To be honest with you, it's like eating a hard green pear because the alcohol never actually penetrates into the pear. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I was just thinking in my head, as far as food safety goes as a chef, you know, we think about what are our enemies, time and temperature and air. Right. So I'm in my brain, I'm like, well, if this pear or this fruit can't touch any air, it's going to be wrapped in that liquid and alcohol, basically. It should be fine, but it's not, huh? Yes, as long as it um, doesn't uh, see air, it's fine. So most people, when they buy the Poire Prison Yard, the, the pear in the bottle, they will drink and drink down below the pear and then buy our little bottle of pear, William, and top it up to keep their pears covered. That way they last, last almost indefinitely, as long as you keep them out of direct sunlight. Even with Russ's uh, genius, they're, they're still far and few between in terms of harvest. We get anywhere from zero to maybe 400 in a good year 
So uh, they're they're still very difficult to do. So they sell out very quickly. They are in a a number of stores around the state. Um, They're available here at the distillery for purchase. I just want to make sure I heard that right. 400 bottles, that's it. That's that's all you can make. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's not an easy process. (laughs) I guess not. You you won't see any factory distillers putting out beer in the bottle. So. Uh, what's great about this, you I think you mentioned you partner with a lot of local fruit growers in the area as well, right? That's correct, yes. So whereas Russell is uh, Holmberg Orchards are growing the pear in the bottle, the actual brandy that we produce are pears from Lyman Orchards in Middlefield and Rogers Orchards in Southington. So the bottles are beautiful, obviously make an insane gift for the, you know, the brandy lover or the, the spirit lover on your list. But what's the best way to enjoy the pear brandy? Most of the Europeans, they'll, they'll drink them straight up. And that's how we were first introduced to them, where they're being served to you straight up. And it's it's a very social drink over there. It's something you take your time over. They say 80% of brandy drinking is brandy smelling. So it's Ooh. just a matter of sitting back and relaxing and enjoying this as on its own. In the States here, they wind up in a lot of cocktails. In fact, there's a wonderful holiday cocktail, very easy that you can make using just simply sparkling wine, about three quarter ounce of um, Pierre William, a little sugar cube, and then a dash of orange bitters. And the bubbles from the champagne bring the pear up, bring the aromas up, and it's just a wonderful drink. That sounds great. But, you know, it's the Europeans eat these as much as they drink them. So they do wind up in a lot of culinary. Uh-huh. Um, we've had restaurants that have injected the pear William into a pork roast with a culinary hypodermic needle and marinated it from the inside out overnight and then do a fresh pear roast. Oh, yeah. There's a chocolatier uh, in Norwalk, Fritz uh, Knipschilt, who's making some wonderful chocolate ganaches using our pear William and our uh, Kirsch. And those are available in Norwalk and up here at the distillery as well. These are great gifts. They're beautiful and taste delicious. And don't forget, you can make a great dessert out of this. We appreciate you, Lewis. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. Cheers. Cheers. That was Lewis Chady. Along with his wife, Margaret, he owns Westford Hill Distillers in Ashford, Connecticut. Find them on Facebook at Westford Hill Distillers. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Tolarski. Thanks for listening, everybody. And could you do us a solid? If you like the show, give us all the stars and review us on your podcast app. Tell us why you listen every week. It'll help people who love food and cooking find the podcast. See you next week.